Welcome back to the Superintendent Radio Network. I'm Kyle Brown. Today I'm talking with Dan Washburn, a reporter and managing editor for the Asia Society and author of the new book, The Forbidden Game, Golf and the Chinese Dream. Welcome to the show, Dan. Thank you for having me. Well, it's great to have you. China has been such a big part of the golf discussion for a long time for us, and you've got an inside look at how it's grown in the last few years. And from what we've seen stateside, it must have been a crazy ride. Yeah, it was. Um, I started covering golf in China around 2005, and I, what brought me to it was I was covering some of the big international events that were starting to come in, and as I hung around the game a little bit, I started kind of learning kind of the complexities that surrounded the game in China. One of the first things that interested me was the the domestic tour. It was called the Omega China Tour back then, and a lot of the golfers on the tour, a lot of them came from blue-collar, poor backgrounds and got into the game late in life and quite randomly, and their personal stories and how they arrived at the game of golf and how they were using golf to create a better life for them and their, their families really spoke to me and I think said something about where we are in, in, in China's history. And then I started learning more about the development of golf courses there. That, that was right around the time when China started to be one of the few places in the world building golf courses. Um, and ironically, new golf courses are technically illegal there. So you've got the country that has banned golf course construction being one of the only countries in the world experiencing a boom. And I just thought a lot of different things surrounding the game uh, made it kind of a nice lens through which to look at China in the first decade of this new century. It allows you to talk about the booming economy, that golf its emergence is really a barometer for that growth. It allows you to talk about this kind of Wild West development. It allows you to talk about some environmental issues. There's a lot of land rights issues. There's all sorts of land disputes, and golf runs right up against that. And then there's kind of this political intrigue because it is still kind of a politically taboo topic. And so it seemed like it was a, a good way to tell China's story through a, a window that I don't think had been a approach before. We hear a lot about it through superintendents and other people, but it's interesting to get a, a look at who it's affecting and how it how it's connecting with people. As part of that, you had said that golf has a reputation in China as a game for rich people and foreigners, and that's absolutely nothing we know anything about here in the U.S. What's changed there uh, recently for them? Regarding that perception, I don't think that much has changed. It still is a game for rich people and foreigners. It's just that more and more of the rich people are now Chinese. Statistically, 0% of the population uh, plays the game, so it's very much a niche sport. But statistically, 0% in China can still be a sizable amount of people. You know, 0%, statistically, 0% of 1.4 billion, you can be to the millions pretty easily. It remains prohibitively expensive to play the game. You know, I think an average round is probably around $150 or more. And then to become a member at one of these courses is kind of an exorbitant fee. So it's really just the upper echelon of Chinese society that could be able to afford the game. There's no real public courses as we know them over there. And so it, it remains a very elitist pursuit. And that's, that's one of the reasons why it remains so politically taboo. It's kind of too ostentatious for public servants to be tied to the game but that just means that government officials go to courses and use fake names. <laughs> well, a big part of the book as well follows Martin Moore from Flagstick in his construction in China. And this was one of the most interesting parts for me because 
the way that you talk about it, the pricing and the planning of the courses there, you, you said it a little earlier, it makes the whole process feel like the Wild West. Was it really that chaotic? Well, I think Martin and his colleagues might be the best to answer that, but I mean, there there's definitely no gunplay, but there is a, <laughs> a sense of there is a sense of lawlessness, and you know, I guess the government officials, the local government officials, can be the equivalent of like a small town sheriff who may or may not be on the take. But it's because you're dealing with an industry that is technically illegal. There's really no no rule book to play by, or maybe the rule book changes from, from place to place, so there might be a feeling that you know things are getting made up as they go along, and sometimes it feels like the crews are left to police themselves because it's you're in this gray area, so it's unclear what all the different regulations might be. And there are you know occasional crackdowns. There's this entity that some people call the Beijing Gulf Police, and occasionally you know workers on uh, construction sites will find a helicopter kind of looming overhead. So there is this bizarre aspect to it. And you've also got the land disputes that I mentioned before between villagers and the local government that can really cause countless delays. It can change the layout of a course. Mm -hmm. So things are just constantly moving, constantly changing, and, you know, things can change from, from day to day. And, you know, this is not what the workers in the industry want. They would, you know, the ones I talk to would want nothing more than for China to legitimize the construction and tell them the hoops they need to jump through to build a totally legitimate course in China, a legal course in China, and they would gladly jump through them because I think they're tired of working kind of looking over one shoulder. It's just that there is no legitimate way to do it at the moment. I think that's one thing that I think everybody in the industry would, would really like to see happen. I don't think they're really... It's not like the Wild West atmosphere <laughs> is, is a big draw. <laughs> how common is, is that game playing with local government? How, how do you navigate something like that? As you said, the guys that I talked to a lot were in the kind of the golf course design and construction side of things. And their way of navigating the kind of unique Chinese complexities is to stay as far away from the politics side of things as possible. That's mostly interactions between the developer and the local government. The guys that I talked to, they said, you know, my job is to come here and build a golf course the best way I can, given the circumstances. I remember one project manager said to me, I leave the Chinese politics to the Chinese. When they tell me to go work on a hole, I go work on a hole. It's a mentality of keeping your head down and dealing with the obstacles and uh, getting the job done the best you can. And, and that may mean you have to do the same hole two or three times because land disputes or new rules change the border of your course. But that's just one of the things you have to get used to from working in the, the Chinese environment. Just so many courses were being worked on uh, simultaneously. I was astounded, even knowing, you know, even going back and knowing how many courses have been built. You know, what was driving the explosion of all of these enormous resorts with just ridiculous numbers of courses? Well, you know, a lot of people are calling this the Chinese century. You've got a booming economy. They're emerging as a superpower. There's a lot of money floating around. Maybe there's a sense that people are making up for lost time. So everything in China, and this is not just in golf, but everything has to be the biggest and the best. You'll see skyscrapers going up all over. Some are set to be some of the biggest in the world. Mm. I remember when I was in Shanghai, there was a time when Shanghai was planning on building the, the world's largest skyscraper, the world's largest Ferris wheel. I think there was one of the world's largest bridges or something like that, too. There was just all, all sorts of these <laughs> world's largest world's biggest projects going on. 
and that, that seems to be happening every week in China. It's the world's biggest something. So everything has to be the biggest and the best. And so there might be a mentality of, this guy built 10 courses, well, I'm going to go ahead and build 12. And there's a market for this. There is a segment of the Chinese population that wants to buy the biggest villa in the biggest golf club in China. It's a status thing. It's a, a projection of wealth, kind of like a, a luxury car or a handbag. And it's kind of like the country and the people are, are saying, hey, look at me. I'm better off than I used to be. Hmm. Well, I know this is on a different scale than it was in the U.S., but does all of this look look at all to you like the U.S. golf course boom that was sold around housing developments? Yeah, I think it does. I mean, obviously there are some differences, but I think most people will tell you that most of the golf courses in China that are getting built are not getting built because there's some overwhelming golfing demand. A lot of them are getting built to help sell real estate, to help sell uh, luxury homes. So the golf course in some cases is just another amenity, another selling point. I've been told that a lot of people who snatch up these homes along golf courses don't even play golf. And a lot of them don't even live in these homes many months out of the year. So you can go to some golf courses in China. All the houses will be sold, but it does have kind of a ghost town feel to it because there's no people. Um, but, but people view it as an investment, and, and they like to be able to say, hey, I own this house on a golf course. When the ban came down in 2004, what kind of realistic effect did it have on the industry? So in 2004, China issued a, an official moratorium on the construction of golf courses. And they had tried to do things like this in the past. I mean, I found other official proclamations that dealt with golf from the 90s and talked about banning construction, but it always lumped golf in with other things. The 2004 one was the first one that really specifically focused on golf. I think it initially slowed things down a little, but you just have to look at the numbers to, to see that it really hasn't been that effective at all. So around 2004, the state media, they reported that China had around 179 courses. They also reported that about 10 of those 179 courses were technically legal. Mm. And that meant they have a they have a license that has the word golf on it, a specific license just for golf courses. So that was 179 in 2004 when they supposedly banned the construction of golf courses. And the estimates now range anywhere from 600, and a couple weeks ago I heard an estimate of 1,000 courses in China now. That's um, not a very effective ban. <laughs> um, and, but ironically, you know, by banning golf courses, supposedly, and then what Beijing did was, in effect, turn its back. They issued the ban and then didn't really enforce it. Enforcement is a common problem in China. You know, Beijing can have certain laws. It's just how they're enforced or not enforced, as the case may be, is the question. So they, they turned their back and they kind of let the thing that they're supposedly trying to ban grow out of control. You know, they have these crackdowns now and then, and there is a lot of uncertainty in the industry. But with this ban, China still remains one of the only places building golf courses in it at any serious rate in the world. And if you work in, in that industry, the design industry or the construction industry, you kind of have to learn to adapt to China's ways because it's, it's where the jobs are. Just to, to jump back for a moment, in, in the book it kind of covers how the ban has been walked back a little bit. Has that changed anything? Has that changed the way the, the game looks out there? Uh, the ban really hasn't been walked back in most of the country. There still remains 
as I said, you know, kind of an uncertainty. So people are still building courses, not really at the, the rate that they were maybe five years ago, but courses are still getting built. But there's also still the occasional crackdown. The one place where golf may have been given some something that resembles an official green light is on Hainan Island, the tropical island south of Guangdong province that the Chinese government is trying to position as an international tourism island. They always use Hawaii and Bali as the comparisons of what mm. they're, they're aiming for there. And golf is viewed as a way to attract tourists, and that makes sense. So there was, this was around 2010, another document came out that said that some types of golf development in Hainan Island seem to be legal. Everything's kind of muddled there, but seems to be <laughs> kind of legal. And so that is one place where it seems like you may be able to go forward with, with fewer problems. But I say that, and then I, I talk to people and say that, you know, Hainan from time to time can be one of the hardest places to get a golf course built. So oh. it's, it's, it's all kind of confusing, to be honest with you, Kyle. <laughs> well, I, I think that may be the name of the game right right now. But from what you saw then, just going back for a moment, should we be looking at China as the next potential place for jobs then? Well, it could be. I mean, that's you know the one place in the world that's building new courses. I know from the, the people on the construction side of things that I talk to, a lot of them would say, hey, if you're not working in China, you're probably not working. Now, mm-hmm. I don't know if that holds true once the courses are open and if that's true for the turf and superintendent industry. I think it is a place to look because this is where new golf courses are, are getting built. Now, I do know of there are a couple people who are trying to build homegrown talent for these jobs, uh, golf course management and superintendent. I, I don't know enough about it um, to tell you how that's, how that's going. Sure. But I, I know that some people are, are working on that. But few other places are building new golf courses, so it definitely would be a, a place to look, and I can guarantee you it would be an interesting place to work. <laughs> it certainly sounds like it. Watching this market has been so interesting in the last few years from our angle, and it was really great to get an inside look through the book. I really enjoyed it as well. So where and when can we find your book? The book seems to be available on Kindle now. But the official U.S. release date is July 15th, and you can visit my website, danwashburn.com. All right. We'll definitely check that out, and I'll make sure that that link is in our show notes as well. Thanks so much for being on the show, Dan. Thank you very much for having me. I enjoyed it. You've been listening to the Superintendent Radio Network, the podcast of Golf Course Industry Magazine, a production of GIE Media. I've been your host, Kyle Brown. You can find all of our podcasts on iTunes or the SRN page of golfcourseindustry.com. Talk to us at srn at gie.net or at GCI Magazine on Twitter. Thanks for listening.